Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast with me, Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week, we're looking at a Gauguin fake in the Getty Museum, Kent Monkman's dramatic new paintings for the Great Hall at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and a show about art and food at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Before we begin, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free daily newsletter to read all the latest art news. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, the latest print edition of the art newspaper is just out, and on the front page is a fascinating story in which we learn that a carving of a horned devil bought by the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles as a sculpture by Paul Gauguin is, in fact, not genuine. Head with Horns, which fetched a record price for a Gauguin sculpture, probably around $3 million, has just been downgraded to being by an unknown artist and relegated to the storeroom. Our correspondent, Martin Bailey, wrote the story, and I spoke to him in our London office. Martin, I wonder if we might begin by you telling us how you got involved in this sculpture, because it's been something you've been focused on for quite some time. Yes, I've always been intrigued by Gauguin's sculptures. I mean, the paintings are so well known, but the sculptures are very imaginative. And I I don't think they've quite had the attention they deserved. So I was particularly interested in this new one, which appeared when the Getty bought it. And interestingly enough, uh, when uh, the director announced uh, the acquisition, um, she said um, that Gauguin's sculpture is exceedingly rare and this intriguing work stands out as a superb example. Well, it's certainly intriguing and um, that's what made me want to dig into it. And um, I'm normally very loyal to the art newspaper, but on this occasion I wanted to do a really detailed piece with footnotes. So I wrote a piece for Apollo um, 10 years ago um, questioning what this really was. And there were three possibilities. One is that it is indeed a genuine Gauguin sculpture, which of course is what the Getty said and what they paid for. Uh, The other possibility, or another possibility, is that it was made by a Polynesian um, sculptor, uh, not Gauguin, but it was made in the South Seas. And the third possibility is that it was actually made by a European. So that's what I set out to try and look at the puzzle and try and solve it. So what were the initial um, grounds to link it to Gauguin, to assert that it was a Gauguin sculpture? Yes. Um, now, the, there are two photographs of the sculpture which appear in Gauguin's notebook, um, which is called Noah Noah, which he wrote um, in around 1899. So it was in his own notebook. It was obviously a very important sculpture uh, for him. And it had always been assumed that it was being made by Gogo, but the sculpture had actually disappeared and um, it had not been seen. And all we had were the photographs of it in Gauguin's album. Now, in 1997, the sculpture suddenly surfaced and appeared in an exhibition in France. So we actually had the physical object. And um, it was some years afterwards, um, five years afterwards, that it was bought by the Getty. And uh, they haven't disclosed the price, but um, there have been reports that it was between three and five million dollars, which would actually be a record price for a Gauguin sculpture. Is it right that they actually acquired, the Getty actually acquired it while it was on display in another museum? Um, It was actually on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in a Gauguin exhibition uh, when they bought it. Uh, But they'd obviously been negotiating quietly behind the scenes from some months before. And it is interesting that this work, you know, has been accepted by the world's leading museums. I mean, the Tate put on a fantastic Gauguin retrospective in 2011 
they showed it, and that retrospective went on to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, where it was shown. And then, uh, I think it was 2015, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York showed it. So it has been very widely exhibited by the world's top museums. So when, I mean, when you wrote that article in 2009 for Apollo, were you casting doubt on the attribution then? Were there doubts in the, in this kind of Gauguin scholarship at that time? Well, there hadn't really been published doubts, but I did talk to a number of Gauguin um, specialists about it. And it's the most curious object. Um, the head itself is very smoothly carved, which, um, you find in some Gauguin sculptures, but in general, he takes um, a sort of rougher approach and the top is sandalwood. Um, there's a most unusual base to it, which is as large as the head itself. And we don't know any other Gauguin sculptures which have this sort of a huge base to it. And the base is, interesting enough, probably a found object. It's a piece of architecture which has been removed and used in another context. Now, that's quite interesting. But on the other hand, Gauguin was a very imaginative um, artist. So it's the sort of thing that he might have done, uh, um, uh, although uh, found objects emerged rather later in the 20th century. Um, So it's also curious because uh, there's quite a severe crack in the head. And if one's doing a smoothly carved piece of um, um, sculpture, wouldn't one really want the finest wood one could get? Um, uh, So the the object is curious, but Gauguin sculptures are are, are so unusual and there's so many different sorts of material he used, uh, ceramics and wood, so it didn't rule it out. Um, but the reason why I really questioned it when I was writing about it was an illustration I found in a book published in France in 1930 on the art of the colonies, the French colonies. And this book had not been cited in the Gauguin literature, um, so I'm not sure that any of the other specialists had seen it. And there's a photograph which is the same as the one in the Gauguin album. And it's what is interesting is the caption, and I've got the book here, and it's caption um, Marquesan Islands, uh, which is where Gauguin was working. And then it says idol or idole in French. And the uh, photo credit says colonial um, department. Um, so obviously in the 19th century, it was assumed to be a Polynesian sculpture and not a Gauguin. Um, So that raised um, serious questions in my mind. Well, in addition to it possibly being a Gauguin, there were two other um, options. One was that it was made by a Polynesian. But I talked to quite a lot of specialists um, in the art of uh, Tahiti and the Marquesan Islands, and they said this work is nothing to do uh, with a local sculptor. Uh, And in any case, it's um, got horns like a devil, and uh, in their culture, they don't see such a figure. Um, So it wasn't a traditional piece of Polynesian sculpture, but there was a sort of option on that one too, because it could have been made for a European market, I mean, it's what we might call airport art now, Um, (laughs) something to sell uh, to tourists who think this is uh, what Polynesian art is like. So that was one possibility. And another possibility is that it was carved by a European. And um, there's um, a French specialist um, who collects um, photographs of Tahiti in the 19th century, and he's very interesting, Goga, um, who's called Fabrice Formanois. And... um, 
his theory is that it was actually carved by a European whaler. And apparently whaling ships were going all over the Pacific. The sailors didn't have much um, to do whilst uh, they were at sea. And uh, they often stopped um, in Tahiti, um, partly because they often rather went for the local women there, as Gauguin did. And the theory of uh, Fabrice's theory is that it was carved by a whaler. So we have all these different possibilities. I suppose the key thing is, when did the doubt set in at the Getty? Well, there was a new curator, Annalise Demar, who arrived um, in 2008. So this was well after the purchase. And she's now working on a very detailed catalogue raisonné of the Getty sculpture collection. So she was looking at it afresh. And she had not been involved in the purchase. So she had a more open mind. And full marks to the Getty, they've been quite open about it. And she's been open about it. And they're in their published catalogue, they're not going to, uh, they're going to describe it as maker unknown. But there is an important bit of new evidence which emerged a few years ago because a photograph album um, with photographs by Agostini, who was a French photographer working in Tahiti, emerged and was bought by the Musée du Quai Branly in Paris. And that photograph of this sculpture is also captioned as um, a, a Polynesian idol. And one can date the photograph because of the other photographs that are in the album. And the photographs were actually taken um, in uh, 1894, which was a year before Gauguin returned, and he was in Paris. So that was really the concluding evidence that it was not a Gauguin. So we're left with the mystery of this intriguing object as to who really made it. It's an important object, I should stress, and it's right that it's in a museum because it was very greatly admired by Gauguin. So in that sense, it's very important. He drew it, didn't he? There, are, there, are, there was a, there's, there's a very powerful drawing that he made in which this sort of figure looms behind a woman. Exactly. No, you're quite right. It, it, it was a very important influence on Gauguin and, and it meant a great deal uh, to him. Uh, he presumably believed that it was uh, traditional uh, Tahitian sculpture and uh, it was a motif which he brought into his own art. So that's why it's important and um, that's why um, it's wonderful that the object is at a public museum and not hidden away in a private collection. So is that it now? It's re- it's resigned to not being a Gauguin, still in the collection as you say, but are there any further repercussions of this? Could the Getty seek recompense from... They bought it from the Wildenstein Gallery. I'm, I presume we're assuming that everybody acted in good faith and therefore there's no possibility of further action that could be taken? Yes, that's a difficult question. I'm sure the Getty is looking closely at what the, situ- the legal situation... Recently, they've asked the Wildenstein Gallery about the provenance and where it had been before they acquired, before the gallery acquired it. And all they've been told that it was with a Swiss private collector. Um, so we don't really know where it came from. And it's a mystery where it's been for a 100 years since when it was um, photographed in Tahiti. Um, so no doubt those sort of discussions will be continuing. And in the meantime, the sculpture has now been banished to the stores um, and uh, presumably will not be requested for Gauguin retrospectives from now onwards. But one hopes that specialists will do more study of the work and uh, may be able to 
answer a bit more about the puzzle that we're facing. Well, I think people can expect to read more about it in the art newspaper in that case. Let's hope so. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read the full story at theartnewspaper.com. Now, the Canadian multimedia artist Kent Monkman, who's a Cree First Nations heritage, is the inaugural artist in a new series at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, in which contemporary artists create pieces inspired by the museum's collection, which are then shown in the Met's Great Hall. It's quite literally Monkman's biggest project yet. A duo of massive, almost seven-metre-long paintings were unveiled in the Great Hall in December. Titled Misty Kosiwak, Wooden Boat People, they reverse art history's colonial gaze by reimagining the traditional white settler narrative through indigenous eyes. Margaret Carrigan, one of our New York-based editors, went to meet Monkman at the Met and spoke to him about appropriating the European tradition of grand history painting, critiquing the colonial origins of encyclopedic museums like the Met from within, and Monkman's indigenous, gender-fluid, time-travelling alter ego, Mischief Eagle Testicle. Margaret began by asking him about his beginnings in art as an abstract painter. I actually trained as an illustrator, but because I had this training in representational work, I thought real artists worked as, uh, or you know, abstraction was like kind of the highest form of painting that there was. So I kind of turned away from my training. Um, I mean, I, I made a living in my early years doing storyboards for TV commercials, but that wasn't my art practice. And I thought anything representational is not real art. So therefore, I'm going to make be an abstract painter and I'm sort of self-taught that way. And uh, so for 10 years, 10, 12 years, I basically just pushed paint around. But I learned so much about paint because, you know, the formal aspects of painting are so deeply interesting and fascinating. You know, you learn about color and transparency and all of these wonderful qualities that, that make painting such a fascinating medium. And that was really my, my entry into painting. Um, but after doing that for, I guess it was more like 12 or 15 years, I realized that pa- abstract painting is a very personal vocabulary. It's a very insular, insular language. Um, and the themes that were interesting to me um, that have to do with colonization, because I'm an indigenous person, I'm Cree, uh, were, were sort of um, secondary to, to the, you know, this abstract language of painting. And I, I found it that that limited language of painting was very ineffective to communicate. So that's when I kind of moved towards uh, representational image making again because I really got interested in the art history of this continent of North America. Uh, The settler artists that came here and were looking at indigenous people and the land, the landscape of North America, and I thought, well much of their work is so problematic because it's, you know, this story of this continent is being lensed through these settler artists and they're looking at us and they're bringing all of their biases, their ignorance, their um, romantic ideas of who indigenous people should be. And the art history that exists on this continent has pretty much told from, it's pretty much told from this one very narrow perspective so that's when I decided to really put effort into, I began by emulating the works of these 19th century, you know, landscape painters like Albert Bierstadt. And then I would populate these scenes with, you know, indigenous narratives to upend that uh, strong subjectivity of their work. And then once I started doing that, I realized that um, there was this much deeper, more interesting 
more sophisticated language of painting that was actually much harder to get a strong grasp of. And that, of course, led me to the old masters and then larger and larger uh, format paintings, history paintings. And I think once I landed at the genre of history paintings, that's when I realized that we, you know, indigenous experiences don't exist in this canon of art history at all. Um, so that really kind of set me on, on, a, on a path to, to, to my current work. So that raises a really interesting question for me because you're kind of like, you're, it's like inception that you're doing. You're incepting history with these indigenous narratives. And in what ways is appropriating this visual language of old masters and European-centric forms and traditions of painting, in what way is that also kind of appropriating European culture and Western mm-hmm. culture to your ends? And does that bring up any kind of like ideological schisms for you? Not really, because, you know, as indigenous artists, we're, we're, we're all, well, first of all, we've been in contact with, with European cultures for 500 years. So there's been a back and forth exchange already for, for hundreds of years. Uh, indigenous people, we don't live in bubbles. We, we don't live in a vacuum. We have been absorbing so much from, you know, the, the, the European settler cultures that have been intermingling with us. And so the indigenous artists that I, I look to that have inspired me are incredible, you know, composers, they're novelists, they're filmmakers, they're, they're using languages, uh, vocabularies in different genres and mediums to express indigeneity. And that's all I'm really doing with paint is I'm using probably the most sophisticated form of painting that there is, uh, and it is European in origin, but, you know, as a Cree person, I basically, I've just looked at, I've watched this trajectory of Western art history and... Uh, have been curious as to why um, it's been discarded because it is actually the most sort of sophisticated language uh, of painting that there has ever been. I mean, the modernists started to sort of reduce the language of painting to kind of smaller and smaller vocabularies, but, you know, the grand tradition of history painting and the possibility for narratives and exploring human experience and emotion, I mean, it's, it's this really dynamic, vibrant vocabulary of painting that has just kind of been discarded. So uh, I thought, well, as an indigenous person, that's kind of what's happened to our our own cultures, our own languages. It's been, you know, European modernism was all about a blank slate. You know, when the Europeans came here, they're like blank slate. But that's been essentially devastating to us indigenous people because we didn't want to lose our cultures. We didn't want to lose our languages. So by kind of resurrecting this dead tradition from, you know, Western art history, I've I see the value. I see the value of this language of painting to authorize into art history indigenous experience, both historical and contemporary, and it's a powerful medium. I mean, I wouldn't be a painter if I didn't believe in the possibility and the power of painting to move people, you know. I've stood in front of, you know, history paintings in the Prado, and I've been moved to tears because of the power of these paintings that were made 150 years ago. And it's different than looking at a photograph. I mean, photographs have their place, they have their place. Certainly, photography has its place in my studio. But for me, it's not the end result. It's it's a, uh, it's a stage towards. It's a tool towards the end result, which is painting. Because I believe that painting is uh, is incredibly powerful and can be harnessed for 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 very complex to explore complex messages and themes. So you're tackling the legacy of colonization head on in this commission for the Met's Great Hall because you are also referencing 
kind of the encyclopedic institution as as a function of this um, westernization and, and kind of glossing over all of these other indigenous traditions. And they've invited you to actually respond to and incorporate things from their own collection into these works that you've created. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how you tackled a an institution like this and how you sourced the works you wanted to reference and what was important in sourcing those specific works and maybe just kind of give us a broad strokes um, idea of what the two paintings that you've created look like. So I've been working with museum collections mostly in Canada, a couple in the United States over the last couple of decades. And my program there was to really unpack the again, unpack the art history of the, the colonial mind, the settlers that came here and were making images that really shaped how both countries um, saw themselves, you know, those myths uh, about each country uh, that were described in the artworks uh, by, you know, the 19th century artists that were like George Catlin, that were capturing images of indigenous people. And there are certain themes that have have, uh, risen um, in, in my own work that I've been challenging. And one of them, well, of course, is like, you know, pure fantasy, just because these, a lot of these people um, were, were, were really just channeling their own cultures, um, ideas and fantasies about indigenous people. At that time, they also really believed that they were uh, watching uh, uh, the extinction of indigenous people. Um, Catlin, you know, went on and on about that, and he called it contamination when he saw an indigenous person wearing anything that was, you know, remotely European in its origin, whether it was clothing or what have you. But indigenous people, from the other point of view, uh, are, see that purely as just like innovation and you know moving towards new new things. Um, so I was already familiar with the process of looking at museum collections and. I've done that a few times in Canada, an exhibition that's completing a, a three-year tour called Shame and Prejudice, and that was really to look at, at 12 museums, what was in the what, what are in the museums and, and that are telling the story of, of our country. So here the Met comes and says, would you like to do a, a, a sort of collection-based project? And again, it was an opportunity to, to register, to, to sort of settle my gaze on what the art of this institution is telling the world about indigenous people and looking for those gaps. Well, there, there are gaps. Um, most of what we find in institutions are, you know, uh, the mainstream institutions of this continent is still very much from that colonial point of view, that colonial perspective. Institutions like the Med and other museums around this country are very much about you know, uh, Western art collecting things from other cultures and, 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 you know, they become these repositories of other cultures. But very rarely are the people of those cultures allowed to interact and, and update, you know, how the, how the audiences actually interact with those objects. And so I saw this as an opportunity to, to ask questions um, about representation and to, you know... Um, identify some of those works of art, whether they're sculptures or paintings that, again, bring forward some of these ideas that, that are, um, that have been very reductive about Indigenous people. So I turn my eye to, to uh, St. Gaudens, um, you know, Hiawatha, for instance, uh, which very much resembles, you know, Rodin's Adam, and, uh, and then, you know, Dying Mexican Girl, uh, again, reinforcing, you know, the idea of extinction, Delacroix's, uh, the Natchez, you know, um, 
reinforcing this idea of the extinction, that little baby being born in that uh, painting, again, t- ostensibly the last of its kind. Where So what I did with my project was take those references and invigorate them, breathe life into them, these, you know, and make them into living th- people that are, that have a future, you know, that grouping of the mother, father, and baby become a celebration of life. So when, 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 uh, when a young couple has a baby, uh, they're not thinking about the extinction of their kind, they're celebrating the, um, the extension of, of, of their kind, the life going forward into the future. And, and so, um, that, that, that image of of that that uh, birth that that new life is is uh, mirrored in both paintings. This idea of of birth and this um, rewriting of like the Genesis tale essentially for North America in so many ways is also something that really comes to bear in, in one of the two paintings, which is the composition is really highly based on Emanuel Lutz's. Um, Washington crossing the Delaware, which is an iconic American image. It's like you know. George Washington out there defeating the British, like this is the birth of the American nation. And what you've done is populated the whole thing with indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Where did you draw the indigenous people from in that? And how did you decide to, or what does that say about American, the the birth of America and how it was born by including them within that compositional framework? So, you know, when I see paintings like that, again, it just essentially recalls the one-sidedness in terms of how the foundational myths of both countries um, have just gone into popular thinking and how, um, you know, Washington is, of course, a hero for the United States. But from the point of view of an indigenous person, you know, he perpetuated genocide. I mean, he was a, a slaveholder. I mean, there's different ways of looking at George Washington. But the thing that's remarkable about that painting is it's the scale of it. It's monumental. And so um, Washington in that painting is becomes this mythical character. And so I wanted to make history paintings featuring indigenous people that carry that same weight and authorize indigenous experiences into this canon of history by sort of positioning them in, in these heroic paintings. We've been talking about all the figures within your work, and there's a key one that we haven't mentioned yet that I I want to talk to you about, which is your gender-fluid, time-traveling, indigenous sex deity that is your alter ego known as Mischief Eagle Testicle. Um, And she appears in both of these works, correct? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of your work. So can you tell us a little bit about where she came from and what her role is within your paintings and as kind of like a narrator for this rewritten history that you're building. For sure. Well, I've never heard anyone describe her as a sex deity, but I like it. She's <laughs> sexy. I find her sexy. sexy. <laughs> and, you know, I created that that character to actually uh, to, to represent an empowered um, perspective of indigenous sexuality, to decolonize our, our sexuality, to decolonize this thing, this limited understanding of gender. And, you know, Europeans arrived here with a very binary way of understanding male, female, and gender. But, uh, you know, in indigenous cultures all throughout North America, we had people that lived between the genders. And, you know, there's a contemporary term for it, two-spirited. But in, essentially, it was, a, it was a way of understanding um, there could be a person between two genders. And, um, you know, we, we didn't have shame about our sexuality. We didn't have shame about our bodies. 
And so, you know, these are these are things that we learned from the Europeans. And so I wanted a, a, to create this persona that could feel very empowered in in her body, feel very empowered in her sexuality. And this person is both male and female in one body that the two spirits are male and female. But I also created her because I wanted to have this persona that could reverse the gaze and, you know, be looking back at Europeans because we've been looking at at Europeans as long as Europeans have been looking at us. And I just wanted to rom- remind people that it's been a two-way street, you know, for the last 500 years, but you certainly don't see that in, in a museum like the Met. And um, so it was really about just reversing the gaze and having this very strong, empowered person that, that, that drew from our traditions of acceptance and that openness that we had towards uh, understanding gender and sexuality. Misty Kozywak, or Wooden Boat People, by Kent Monkman, is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York until the 9th of April. The solo exhibition Shame and Prejudice, A Story of Resilience, is at the Winnipeg Art Gallery until the 9th of February, and it then travels to the Museum of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, opening on the 8th of May. And Monkman's installation The Rise and Fall of Civilization" goes on permanent display at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary from the 3rd of February. You can find details of all of Monkman's future exhibitions at kentmonkman.com. Now, before we begin to indulge in art and food, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In our conversation about the art market on last week's podcast, we mentioned Annie Shaw's article on the increasing visibility of commercial galleries as sponsors of museum shows in the UK. Well, Annie's investigation of this issue is now online at theartnewspaper.com. While museums tell her that they are, quote, strict on any influence by market players and not involved in curatorial decision-making, the trade are much more open about the blurring of lines. As the London and New York-based dealer Per Skarstedt says, quote, certain galleries work closely with curators and suggest that those institutions consider mounting an exhibition of an artist. Sometimes there's a commercial interest in them doing that. Therefore, they're motivated to make sure an exhibition takes place. Hong Kong is indefinitely closing its public museums in a bid to contain the coronavirus which developed in Wuhan, Hubei province, in late December and at the time of recording has killed around 106 people. As our China correspondent Lisa Movius writes, the outbreak has also prompted concerns about this year's edition of Art Basel in Hong Kong, scheduled to run from the 19th to the 21st of March. That event, as we heard on last week's podcast, has already prompted worries about the protests and police brutality ongoing in the city since last summer. A spokesman for Art Basel told Lisa that they're monitoring the coronavirus developments closely, but added that at this stage it's too early to say how the outbreak will affect the fair. And our correspondent Ria Pryor reports that dealers at the first UK art fair of the year, the London Art Fair, were somewhat perplexed as to what new UK money laundering regulations will mean for day-to-day business. Under the new laws, galleries have to conform to a much higher standard of due diligence in confirming a client's identity when making a sale of €10,000 or more. The new regulations include requesting to see documents, such as a passport, before doing a deal, as Ria writes, not easily done in the context of a busy art fair. One anonymous dealer admitted to lowering the price of works to sit under the €10,000 threshold to avoid dealing with the new regulations. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. Now, an exhibition about food in European culture in the period 1500 to 1800 opened at the end of last year at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. 
It includes more than 300 exhibits and features spectacular historical reconstructions by the food historian Ivan Day, including a Jacobean sugar banquet, a European feasting table and a Georgian confectioner's workshop. Among other things, the aim of the show is to explore how issues relating to food in previous centuries remain hot topics today. I went to Cambridge to speak to Victoria Avery, one of the curators of the show. Vicky, it seems to me a really pertinent moment to be exploring this this territory because food has is so important to what we're thinking about in terms of climate change in yeah. terms of in terms of the excesses of our current age. So was was that a factor in you deciding to do this show? Absolutely. So uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Melissa Calarizo, is a historian um, of culture um, and food in the early modern world. I'm a, uh, I'm a Renaissance um, arts person. Um, and we find that often with our visitors, they find it hard to get into boring early materials. So, you know, the show is 1500 to 1800. And we felt that actually what we want to do with the show is take people on a journey backwards. So we, what we are acknowledging is you cannot open a paper... Um, you know, watch the telly, listen to the radio without hearing something about food, whether it's Brexit related food security issues, whether it's food poverty and food banks and um, supermarkets um, wasting food, whether it's David Attenborough, Cambridge alumni, um, plastic in the oceans or whatever it is. So people are absolutely rightly concerned about inequalities, about um, food provisioning, whatever. So we thought, OK, actually, Knowing the early modern period, many of these concerns, issues, anxieties have, if they're not absolutely identical, they have parallels or they have their roots in the early modern period. So we thought, okay, let's use material culture, wonderful artworks to take people um, on a journey back. So we start from the present. We acknowledge in our introductory panel some of these issues and say, come with us on a journey back three, four, five hundred years. And after hopefully the peregrination of almost 300 objects, people will understand understand the background to these anxieties and then there's a zone at the end the relax reflect respond zone where people then will hopefully have a chance to mull over some of their concerns there's a feedback form and hopefully the idea is there will be absolutely transformation that maybe when visitors are going around the supermarket and they actually see the fact you can buy a pineapple for 75p or a quid when it used to be the most exclusive luxurious exotic in inverted commas food for the royal table how has this come to be i mean let's talk about that pineapple bit because it's, it's, it's a great glorious moment in the show the, the pineapple has an enormous totemic significance in a sense doesn't it because it's like it literally was involved in decorating buildings at the time mm-hmm. all that kind of thing so it became this amazingly important object why yes well, but i think i think the shape is actually incredibly beautiful and the fact that it has these flourishing um you know um leaves at the top it looks a little bit like a crown so it's often known as the king of the fruits the queen of the fruits the princess of the fruits and i think the lovely rich color uh, of the skin was also very attractive but of course you open it up you get the sweet smell and the absolutely delicious taste that people find it very hard to describe in words this beautiful they say it tastes like rose water and sugar mixed together or whatever but for the fitzwilliam Museum, and for Cambridge there are these very very specific pineapple links so we are proudly celebrating in one of our paintings 300 years of pineapple growing in in England Um, we have a portrait of Sir Matthew Decker's pineapple the king of the crop flourishing in an English Eden that was painted in 1720 and who was Matthew Decker none other than um, our founder's grandfather and he was a wealthy 
Dutch merchant and he kind of financed the British crown. He comes over from Amsterdam around 1700, buys a huge estate in Richmond-upon-Thames. And being a proud Dutchman and an interested horticulturalist, he thinks, OK, the Dutch have been growing this tropical fruit in an, you know, temperate European climates. They've been beating Mother Nature. Um, they've been doing it in Holland for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. I want to do the same for England. So he starts growing with his incredibly brilliant Dutch gardeners, a Telender, and with lots and lots of money thrown at the project. He is able to grow pineapples in Richmond-upon-Thames. What this speaks to, this sort of breadth of objects, is that you're really exploring the, the, the variety of ways in which food impacted the, the culture right across the board from, from, from aristocracy down to people living and working. Um, can you tell us something about that? Because the social political aspect is very important. Yes, it is. So I think um, the period that we're dealing with, 1500 to 1800, um, and Europe obviously at that point absolutely includes Britain. What we're saying is that a lot of these concerns, anxieties about food, they have a lot of them, fundamentally, there's a, there's a religious aspect to them, that actually the notion is that perhaps... Um, um, first man, man as created by God wandering around the Garden of Eden, actually is, is, is vegan or indeed vegetarian because, of course, God creates Adam, then he creates the animals and they are Adam's friends uh, and he names them um, and then he says, actually, I want a different companion, so God creates Eve. But the idea is that all the food in the Garden of Eden is fruit um, and, of course, we all know about the fall when they eat the forbidden apple from the tree. But actually, in paradise, man is friendly with the animals. He doesn't kill them um, and he's, 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 he's basically vegan. Then, of course, the fall happens um, and man is condemned for all eternity to work for his food and then he becomes a meat eater. So this idea that actually there are a lot of um, theological arguments that run um, from St Francis and we have um, a wonderful namesake later on, um, San Francesco de Paola. Um, he is the patron saint of vegans and vegetarians. He founds a Franciscan-based order called the Minims around the middle of the 1400s, so it's, you know, very, very early, saying, we will take the three normal vows of chastity, poverty and obedience. But the fourth vow is non-meat eating and non-dairy produce, so they don't want to exploit animals. So there's a theological argument very very strongly through and then of course we move on to uh, medicine and health and the body the idea of the humors um, if you are phlegmatic you should avoid eating too much fish um, if you are an invalid if you are a birthing mother if you are a young infant certain types of food are more appropriate to you so often the food choices what to eat and what not to eat is based on early forms of medicine really going back to Galen and people like that sort of Roman or ancient Greek they all have their roots and it moves through to the Renaissance uh, and sort of early modern period um, you've also got political agendas again about who has access to the food who's controlling um, uh, you know so at the end of the show uh, there's a lot about the sort of the poor law and the bread sizes um, it has very very current resonances with the political situation today about uh, there's Gilray criticising corrupt politics politicians for um, sitting on, um, uh, on on food supplies and making food inaccessible and too expensive for the majority. Um, so I think this political end, uh, a political angle is also very interesting. 
or indeed the idea of national stereotypes that ultimately end up being quite racist um, about things like, say, often the French might call us nowadays, oh, you know, le rose beef, because we all love eating beef. Well, actually, that goes back to the 16th and 17th century. We've got an engraving of Hogarth, you know, oh, the old roast beef of England. Um, or in, in, a, in a more uh, maybe sort of less politicised way, but the idea of uh, the rather wealthy um, elite going off to Italy uh, in the 18th century, um, they, they adopt Italian fashions, they learn the language, they love the Italian food, and then they come back to England and they go, oh, you know, I'm not going to eat boring beef now, I'm a macaroni man. And they, they have all this affectation, and they mince around, and they only eat Italian food, and they are known as the macaroni men because there's this idea that actually the foreign, the exotic, the exciting is somehow better than your local your local fare. While we're on the subject of Italy, we have to talk about the cucagna because you, you've sort of reconstructed in, in, in sort of reproduction form a cucagna, which is this sort of arch of food. Tell us about the cucagnas. Yes, so in a way, the idea of um, theatre and spectacle around food and again, a little bit about access and who owns what. So there's a tradition in Italy, but particularly in Naples, that starts off from the, the sort of 16th century onwards of um, at high days and holidays, perhaps um, around carnival time when you get the, the idea of the world turned upside down um, or perhaps um, during, um, you know, we, we, for example, the celebrations of rulers or whatever, they would erect these temporary um, architectural structures, maybe a basis of wood and, and, and plaster, but then they would hang off these structures, real foodstuffs. So we thought it would be amusing to allow the public the sort of sensation of being a Neapolitan around 1629 and actually walking through one of these archways. So sadly, it's just a two-dimensional um, painted representation, but it's taken from a tiny print in a book celebrating, it was a viceroy of Naples who had just finished his tenure. It is one of a number of stops on this processional route. But we thought, let's blow up this drawing to life-size. So it's an archway constructed of a whole range of uh, wheels of Parmesan cheese, bread loaves, salamis, sausages, even a couple of suckling pigs with um, uh, um, uh, tubes in their mouth out of which fireworks uh, would project. Um, and the idea was that it was a, it was a celebration of uh, largesse, of magnificence and munificence on the part of the rulers. And at the end of a, in a couple of days, the signal would be given and the poor of Naples would be allowed to literally deconstruct. They'd all run like crazy and they would attack the arches and they would be able to eat the food and then take some of it home. But what happens over time is that the um, Everybody wants to outdo everybody else. Everything has to be bigger and better and newer than the last year. So by the time you get to the 18th century, we have this rather horrific description where actually it's not just um, cured sausage meat or cheeses. Actually, they have live animals as part of these gargantuan, rather grotesque, actually, structures um, and even live birds pinned by their wings. So tourists would come along and actually be rather appalled. It was supposed to be a glorious spectacle but um, some of the British tourists, they write saying, actually, it's appalling. It's a disgusting thing. I, 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 my appetite has been utterly turned off watching these poor, impoverished, starved um, citizens being allowed to attack these poor animals. So it, it doesn't actually put anybody in a good light in the end. I think you work very nicely with ideas of on the one hand, a sort of splendour and a sort of an enticing seduction. And then on the other hand, disgust 
um, ethical dilemma and all that kind of thing. And I think that's really very well done in the point in the point in the show where there is a sort of construction of a confectioner's window, and then right next to that you have aspects relating to slavery and the production of sugar. This was this is a clear intent on yours to, to sort of play with the viewer's sort of um, emotional and, and ethical response to to food, right? Yes, I, I think that food choices have always had um, an ethical edge to them, um, and the show we're trying to explain to people about lots of p words about the 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 production of food the provisioning of food how do you bring food into cities in in the period the preparation of food the preserving of food because of course at that time you can't beat the seasons you have to have some stuff in then the presentation of food um but the idea that um the production of food um there are some very positive things about that. I mean, maybe horticultural innovation, uh, this idea of actually being able to grow the tropical pineapple um, in the temperate climates of, of, of Europe through, through man's innovation and horticultural um, cleverness, fine. But the flip side is that actually there is sadly a lot of exploitation in food production. So um, you get Christopher Columbus going off, um, discovering uh, you know the new world. There's a lot of um, competition, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, the English, everybody's at it. Um, they want to colonise um, and exploit the new world. Um, for their own material gain because of course there's a demand for these in inverted commas these exotic these luxurious new foodstuffs um, and the Europeans come over um, and they take advantage of the uh, the native populations and of course there is this very very um, um, sad and shameful aspect of food production for example as you've mentioned about the sugar production where many um, you know West Africans were enslaved and sold against their will and forced to work under appalling conditions on these European owned and managed sugar plantations in order to bring back the sacred, you know, white stuff that all Europeans wanted on their table. So um, we were very keen in the exhibition to um, explain about uh, the, the, the problematics of production. So we do have from St John's College uh, Library. Um, St John's, as you may know, is the college where William Wilberforce and um, uh, Clarkson uh, were, were students. And they have a big collection about um, anti-slavery and about the abolition movement. And they acquired a few years ago letters that were typical, actually, of... Um, uh, 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 Europeans owning sugar plantations. Now, we're not trying to particularly ostracise this one gentleman, William Perrin, who owned five or six plantations in Jamaica, but he is an in, you know, he's, he's one of uh, any number of Europeans who own these plantations and the letters explain in rather callous, matter-of-fact terms about the acquisition of enslaved people to run the sugar plantations and they talk about the harvesting, they talk about the weather, they talk 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 about cargoing, but all in the same breath. Um, and then just along from this particular um, you know, it's quite hard hitting display. We have this uh, Gilray print of two soldiers in a sweet shop in a confectioner's window. The actual um, print is about um, it's, a, it's a political comment actually on the Na uh, Napoleonic War and about soldiers. But the reason we've actually included it here is because in the background, um, you, you know, they're, they're sitting in Kelsey's, this very um, up end uh, London confectioner's shop, and you've got pineapples in the window and fruit and all the sort of glassware 
elsewhere that um, these high-end confections would either hire or rent out. And they're sitting there eating whip syllabubs and um, sugar, what they called sugar plums, you know, sugared almonds. And we thought it'd be rather, well, the, the juxtaposition of the three months between the letter being written and the print coming out was actually uh, kind of edgy and I thought would really make people think. And it also allowed us then to uh, bring in wonderful Ivan Day, the food historian, and to make one of his recreations of uh, a late Georgian confectioner's window that people could literally kind of stick their noses against and drool at the 12th cakes and the, the sugar plums and so on. Vicky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Feast and Fast, The Art of Food in Europe, 1500 to 1800, is at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge until the 26th of April. As I mentioned, the new print edition of the Art Newspaper is out now, and you can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do, and if you've enjoyed it, leave a rating or review. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Martin, to Margaret and Kent, to Victoria, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we'll be looking at Radical Figures, the new figurative painting exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. See you then. Music